the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul refuses to repent and seek the Lord as Israel scatters. Meanwhile, his son Jonathan is following the Lord and that gives him courage to make a bold move. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 16. The title of the message is, A Steadfast Heart. 1 Samuel 13. Well, the whole theme of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart, and we've been learning a lot of good lessons and bad lessons. And we learned last time about Saul's foolishness, that Saul was more interested in keeping up appearances for the people than he was for obeying the Lord. And that was a foolish heart. But despite Saul's foolishness and the danger that it put Israel in, his son Jonathan continued to follow the Lord. And so while Saul hardens his heart at that correction from the Lord, Jonathan opens his heart to what God in his graciousness might do. And so as we meet this amazing young man for the first time, you know, his steadfast heart will be a marked contrast with his father's stubborn heart. And so may the Lord use his example that we might learn to have steadfast hearts that show we're different too. So chapter 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 16. It says, And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people that were present with them, they abode in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned unto the way that leads to Ophrah and unto the land of Shual, Another company turned the way of Beth Haran, and another company turned to the way of the border that looks to the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks and for the axes and to sharpen the goads. And so it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan, but with Saul and with Jonathan his son was there found. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. Here we see that because of Saul's disobedience, that the Lord doesn't give him the next step, that the Philistines begin to oppress Israel. In chapter 13, verse 16, it starts off by saying that Saul and Jonathan they stayed in Gabeah of Benjamin. That's Saul's hometown. Now, remember, Saul originally had 3,000 men, and he had summoned everyone else who was able to fight to Gilgal. 
But we learned already in chapter 13 that he's down to 600 men at this point in time. Israel needs a miracle if they're going to defeat this massive army of the Philistines. But the problem is this. Saul has no clue what God wants him to do next. He's disobeyed orders by not waiting for Samuel to perform the sacrifice so they could seek the Lord together. And when Samuel confronted him with that sin, Saul refused to repent. So guess what? God doesn't speak. God has nothing to say. And before we even get into the problems that this causes, when you and I compound our sin with a stubborn reaction to God's conviction, it always leaves us in that type of limbo because God's going to refuse to move forward with me in that state. It's not that he doesn't want to move forward. It's not that he's angry with me and he's done with me. It's that he's not going to let me move forward like that. He's going to be willing to receive me if I repent, but he's going to resist me if I remain prideful. And so Saul's in that limbo state where he refuses to repent, he's prideful, and the Lord just kind of mums the word. And so without a clue about what to do next, Saul follows the one man who might know what to do, Samuel, who we read in verse 15 that he went to Gabeah of Benjamin. Gabeah is just five miles from this massive Philistine army. Samuel has nothing to fear. He knows what the Lord's plan is, but Saul won't humble himself. So he doesn't know what to do, so he just goes to where Samuel is. And the problem is, when he gets there, Samuel has nothing to say. So with no Israeli force coming out to meet the Philistines for battle, the Philistines figure Israel's fled the field. And so we see in verse 17 that they send out these harassing forces into the countryside and to assert their authority. Look at verse 17. And the spoilers, it says, came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. And it tells us they all went three different directions in verses 18 and 19. Now, when we think of spoilers, sometimes we might think of maybe like scouts or advanced forces, but that is not who these guys are. The word spoilers means those who cause destruction and death. Proverbs 28, 24 describes this type of a military soldier. In Proverbs 28, 24, it says this, whosoever robs his father or his mother and says, it's no transgression, I didn't do anything wrong. The same is a companion of a destroyer, it says here, but it's the same word, spoiler. The idea here is that, you know, whosoever robs his mom and dad and goes, I'm doing nothing wrong. That's who these type of people are. They don't have any bonds. They don't have any qualms. They don't get squeamish with doing awful things. These are the type of people that are pillagers. They're designed to inspire terror by destroying crops, by destroying homes, by murdering and enslaving anyone they come across. That's their job, to frighten the population into submission. And these group of raiders, it says that they go to the northeast, to the west, and to the southeast. Now, these pillagers that go out to do this in these directions would divide Israel in half, making it very difficult for them to unite against the Philistines. And as we'll see in a moment, the plan worked. Because to stop the raiding, to stop the pillaging, local Israelis agree to give up their ability to produce weapons. Verse 19 Now, there was no smith found throughout all Israel. The phrase now is not describing something that was in the past. It actually should be translated, so then, which means as a result of these pillagers. As a result of these raiding parties going out, it says that there were no smith found in all Israel. The word there means a highly skilled craftsman, but 
Clearly here, the context refers to someone who would be like a weapon maker or an armor maker or someone who would be able to smith these things that the Israelis would be able to fight with. Why was there no one found? Well, the Philistines either killed them or took them captive. If the Israelis needed repairs for any of their work tools, well, then they had to go to the Philistines and it didn't come cheap. Look at verse 20. It says, but all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share, his coulter, his axe, his mattock. These are all farming tools. But verse 21 says, yet they had a file. That phrase, had a file for, means the fee for the sharpening. So the fee for the sharpening for any of these things was two-thirds of a shekel. It's not translated here, but it's in the text. Two-thirds of a shekel is about $200 for us. Could you imagine if you were working in the yard? And you had to go get something resharpened, and it cost you that much? That's when you go and buy a new tool. The Philistines, their heart was, we see in verse 19, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. This is oppression. Disarming the Israelis and setting up a system of subservience implies a period of time between the events at the start of chapter 13 and the events of chapter 14. When Jonathan first attacks the Philistines and they are victorious and where we're at now, there's a period of time that has to go on in between where Saul's doing nothing and the Israelis are being oppressed. And so that brings the question to mind, what is Saul doing during this time? He's their king, isn't he? Isn't one of the reasons they wanted a king is that someone would organize them and lead them out into battle? Where is he? Well, we'll learn later on in chapter 14 that he's brooding under a tree. He's doing that because he knows he can't move against the Philistines without supernatural help. But he refuses to acknowledge his sin so he can get that help. Listen, if you blow it, if you disobey the Lord, if you sin, confess your sin and repent. That's the best solution. You know, the enemy comes to whisper to you and say, oh no, you can't go to God now. Oh no, I know because that's what he tells me. You can't talk to the Lord about this, or God can't use you anymore, or God won't forgive you, or here you are again. The very best thing you can do when you've blown it is to confess your sin and repent. Listen, learn from me. There's nothing more miserable and less productive than a backslidden believer who knows what's right but refuses to do it. There's nothing more miserable in this world. An unbeliever is much happier than a believer who is backslidden, knows what he's supposed to do, and refuses to do it. I remember I had a Bible college teacher. Who, he came out of the whole hippie movement. He'd gotten saved out of that movement. He had a period where he had backslidden, and he went right back to his life of drugs. And so he went back to his old friends who were still doing drugs. And he said none of them wanted to hang out with him. Because as they're all getting high, he would look at them and go, you know, we're all going to hell, right? We're all, I mean, this is like, we're all going to hell. Like, like we are lost. Like Jesus is the only way and none of us want to do what he says. And so we're all going to hell. And they were like, dude, we don't want to hang out with you. There is nothing more miserable than a backslidden believer who knows what he's supposed to do, but won't do it. Don't do that. The Lord loves you and he desires to forgive. Jesus still died for you, knowing everything you've done and everything you will do. So humble yourself and run to him to find the grace and the mercy to help in your time of need. Now, here's the crazy part. Because of his stubbornness, in essence, Saul does lose the kingdom, just like Samuel said he would. He told him when he did this, he said, God would have established you forever, but now the kingdom shall not continue. Now it's taken from you. Well, now it is. 
because the Israelis aren't serving him anymore. They're serving the Philistines. Just like Samuel said, his people bowed to the Philistines and put themselves at a major disadvantage. Look at verse 22. So it came to pass in the day of battle, when eventually a battle comes, we'll get to that later on. When that comes, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and Jonathan, his son, there was found. So they were not disarmed. They were able to hold on to their weapons because they were in hiding the whole time. Now, I love how it says here, so it came to pass in the day of battle. The battle will come because God loves his people, even though Saul is putting himself before his people right now. Now, when it says that they had no sword nor spear, the reference here is to iron weaponry, the very best weaponry of that time. They likely had more primitive weapons because we'd already seen them doing fighting. What's interesting is that archaeologists, when they have dug up these old Philistine cities, they have found that during this time period that they had a horde of iron weapons. As a seafaring people, they always had the best weaponry in the region. So this comment is probably stating that the only two people who had comparable weapons to the Philistines were Saul and Jonathan. But notice verse 23, all the appeasing that Israel tried to do wasn't enough. For now this army that had camped in Michmash, now they start moving out, it says, to the passage of Michmash. If the people thought capitulation would bring them peace, they were sorely mistaken. Because now this massive Philistine army moves into a pass that heads to the east, further into Israeli territory, toward where most of the Israelis had fled across the Jordan River. And so at this point, someone decides to act. But it's not King Saul. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Now, came to pass upon a day. Literally means upon the day. Upon the day that the Philistine army moved. That Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side, but he did not tell his father. Jonathan decides to undertake a secret mission. And the only one who's in on this mission is the one who bore his armor, this young man. Now, every time I read my Bible and I read this story, I think of Jonathan going out and like he's got like this little boy going with him, lugging his armor around and stuff, whatever. If you didn't have that image, good for you because you probably understood your Bible better than I did. That is not who this guy is. The armor bearer were officers in the army. They were officers in ancient armies. Officers had these assistants, and they were responsible for the officer's personal armor and weaponry, but they also helped with administrative duties. These were not servants. These were not slaves. These aren't the equivalent of a water boy at a sporting event, okay? This is like the assistant coach. These were solid soldiers, the ones who the officers trusted the most, their right-hand men. And so he turns to his right-hand guy, who he knows he can trust in a pinch, and he says, Let's go undertake a secret mission. Let's go to the other side. And he doesn't tell his father. Now, to move the army of the Philistines from Michmash to go east, they'd have to go into this valley. They call them wadis over there. You'd have to go into this wadi. And so as they start moving into the wadi, Jonathan and the troops would recognize, they would see the Philistines were on the move. So it just so happens that on the same day the Philistines are on the move, that Jonathan makes this choice. And so he's going to see that the Philistine army is moving. Now, it does bring up a question, why doesn't he tell his father? Well, verse 2 and 3 tell us why. Verses 2 and 3 tell us what Saul's doing during this time. It says, And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gebeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. 
and Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan was gone. Now, remember in chapter 13 when I said that Saul was tearing for Samuel, that that wasn't a bad thing, that it meant he was waiting for, hoping for, with expectation for Samuel to come. That's a good tarrying. This is a different word. This word means to settle down, to stay in one place. You could basically just say doing nothing. Saul is doing nothing in the uttermost part of Gabeah. He's not in the city because the city's not safe because the Philistines are looking for him. He was in the nearby field sitting stubbornly under a fruit tree. Why? Well, the person with him may give us an idea. For it says that Eli's great-grandson, the high priest, is here with Saul. Now, why is he not in the tabernacle? Well, we might say, well, the ark's not at the tabernacle, so what can he really do at the tabernacle? That might be possible. But we're going to find out later that the ark is actually here with Saul too. So why are the high priest and the ark with Saul here? Well, we see that the high priest is not just here, but he's actually wearing his ephod. He is in his high priestly garments that he would normally wear when serving in the tabernacle. So why does Saul have the Ark of the Covenant and a high priest ready to serve with him? Because Samuel's not talking. He's hoping this guy will talk. He is waiting for the high priest to give an answer from God, the next set of instructions. In fact, later on in the chapter, Saul is going to tell the high priest to bring the Ark, and he's going to say, find out what God's doing. And What's crazy is that when he hears the noise of the Philistines fighting, he actually stops the priest from seeking the Lord and he makes his own decision to go off and fight. So the reason that Saul is pouting under the shade of a fruit tree is because God's staying quiet. Instead of repenting, Saul's stubbornness is bringing about the death of his nation. Because here's the truth, guys. When you're in a standoff like this with the Lord, the Lord is not going to be the one to move, ever ever. The Lord's never going to be the one to go, you know what? You got me. You got me. I'll go ahead and give this ground. He doesn't do that. When Jacob wrestled with him all night, the Lord finally said, Jacob, you want to know how easy this could have been for me? And he just goes, and he knocks his hip out of joint. By the end of this, Jacob's in so much pain, so much emotional anguish, because all his wrestlings with God didn't work. He's been able to connive his way against his brother. He'd been able to deceive his father. He'd been able to deceive his father-in-law. He'd always been able to swindle his way with whatever circumstance he was in. But when God came out and started wrestling with him, he gave God his best shot. And by the end, where did it leave him? Exhausted because he'd been up all night fighting and now he can't even run. And the Lord just looked at him and he said, you know, well, Jacob is begging, please bless me before you go because the Lord's like, I'm done. I'm done. This is fruitless. I'm not budging. And Jacob cries out and he says, please don't leave me without blessing me. I got nothing left. And of course, the Lord has that famous question, what's your name? And for the first time, Jacob admits, I'm a dirty, sneaky thief. I'm a heel catcher. That's how I do it. That's when the Lord says, not anymore. That's my blessing to you. You're going to be different starting today. You're going to start trusting me. You're going to let me be in charge of your life. And things were different for Jacob. Not perfectly, just like us. But things started to change after that. Well, Saul's not there. 
He's still being stubborn. And here's the sad part. Gideon defeated the Midianites with half the men that Saul had, 300. And his soldiers, they didn't have a whole lot of weaponry either. They went out there armed with trumpets and with lamps. And yet, God didn't need modern weaponry or superior numbers. All he needed was men with hearts that would steadfastly follow him. That's all he was looking for. It'd almost be like if Gideon was hanging out at this point in time, he'd look at Saul and go, what's your problem? You got twice the men I had. All the Lord was looking for was a heart that was steadfast toward him. The dictionary defines the word steadfast as dutifully firm and unwavering. It's not just being stubborn and unyielding. It means dutifully. It means you've been given orders and you're going to stand firm there and not be moved. You're going to execute your orders no matter what. Synonyms to this word are loyal, faithful, devoted. Saul is firm and unwavering, but it's not into his devotion or his loyalty to the Lord. He is firm and unwavering in his devotion to his appearance before his men. He won't repent, but he also won't confess in front of his men. And so he keeps up this charade of, guys, we're not doing anything until because God hasn't spoken yet. We won't do anything until God tells us what to do. In contrast, Jonathan took what he did have, just one guy. He took him and his armor bearer, two guys, and a heart that was devoted to what the Lord might do in this difficult situation. And God, well, he's going to do some interesting things. Look at verse 4. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. The phrase there, sharp rock, it means like a steep hill. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Senna. And the forefront of the one was situated northward over against Michmash, and the other was southward over against Gabeah. And Jonathan said unto the young man that bears armor, he said, Come. And let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. I don't know, if I was Jonathan's armor bearer at this point in time, I would say, yeah, but I I would like a lot more. We'll get to that guy's response in a second, because it's way better than mine. But the idea here is between the passages refers to these other smaller wadis that ran into the main wadi, which people used to travel east and west in this region. So these in-between paths would need to be heavily watched by guards to ensure as the Philistine army came down from the hill on Michmash and came into the wadi to move east to ensure that no one hit them from the flank or no one hit them from behind by surprise. So they've got these garrisons stationed there. And as Jonathan makes this move, he notices they're moving and he decides, let's go check on one of these guard spots and see what the Lord might do. So Jonathan checks on the Philistines by taking one of these narrow wadis to get to the bigger one. And the end leads him to a hill that overlooks another narrow passage on the other hill. And there he sees one of these posted guards and he tells the armor bearer, hey, let's go over to the garrison, the guard group of these uncircumcised, I love is what he calls them. He doesn't say, let's go over to those people who have better weapons than us. Let's go over to those people who are outnumber us. He doesn't see them that way. He sees them as those whose lives aren't separated to the Lord. And therefore, Jonathan sees the Philistines as the ones who are at the disadvantage. Isn't that interesting? He looks over and he goes, let's go over and see those uncircumcised. They're not in the place we are. We're dedicated to the Lord. Let's go over and see these folks who don't have the Lord on their side. I want to read to you something from 1 Samuel 17, 
from David when he confronted Goliath. Before he was going to go out to Goliath, Saul, of course, is meeting with David and trying to convince him to not go. In 1 Samuel 17, Saul says to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, your servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered him out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and I smote him again and I slew him. And thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing as he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. He'd probably heard that speech before from his son. Can you see why these two became best friends? Jonathan's like, let's go talk to those uncircumcised. All the other Israelis are cowering when Goliath is out there going, oh, I'm Goliath, I'm going to kill everybody, you know, and they're all running into the caves. And David's out here and he's like, who's this dude? I went out against the lion, against this, against the bear. Dude took my sheep and knocked him in the face. He came at me after I took the sheep out of his mouth and I knocked him in the face again and killed him. Why? Because the Lord was with me. It's just an animal. I'm the Lord's. So this uncircumcised Philistine would be like one of them. Both Jonathan and David were men who assessed situations based on what God's word said instead of what their own senses or even other people's senses told them. That's faith. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours. Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.